With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an absolute podcast. We're back after a, a one-week break just to kind of let things settle and uh, get ourselves into off-season mode. But uh, yeah, we're back. I'm John Casolo, and uh, with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy, oh man, wouldn't it be great if Kevin Alley went to Oklahoma City Day? It would be that I, there are a few things I want in sports more. Uh, there is one thing I want in sports more, and it is currently on my television. It involves a certain New York Rangers hockey club. That's fine. It is terrifying. Um, yeah, I'm I'm currently watching the, the Mets uh, try to make it 10 straight down two to one of the Braves right now. So I'm not sure if they will, but. Can't complain about an eleven and three start if you're a Mets fan because it's only happened one other time or two other times in franchise history. So pretty good, pretty good start to the baseball season for those of us who generally suffer through it. Fair enough. So obviously there's not a ton going on this week uh, in terms of actual gameplay, just because uh, I see lacrosse hasn't played since they uh, completely bludgeoned Hobart to death. Um, Obviously, basketball and football are over. Uh, spring practice ended a couple weeks ago. But we are seeing a ton of movement on the recruiting front uh, in both football and basketball. But I want to start with football because I think uh, today this Robert Washington thing has really been uh, entertaining as hell for, for those of us that follow and write about the team. Dan, I guess I'll start with you. Uh, what's your kind of reaction after – you know, everything we saw from, from Washington's dad and then the, the everything else we saw from Washington's dad. Like, just where do you kind of stand on all this? Um, I don't know. The Washington's dad stuff today was weird because the, the two articles that went up from, from Stephen Bailey at Syracuse.com were both pretty encouraging, just taken uh, by themselves because, A, it, it, it really seemed to 
quell any fears of Syracuse just being kind of a, I don't know, some people probably thought that Syracuse was kind of a, like, out of respect inclusion in the final six, which I, I never thought that was the case. There's no reason for a kid from North Carolina with no actual, like, ties to Syracuse outside of liking the school to include Syracuse in a list like this. Um, so that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, and then, obviously, if you wanted to interpret uh, Washington seniors, um, I'd feel good or whatever the quote was uh, from the first article, then that's fine. I don't think that that was a, a tell or anything about where he's going to commit. Um, now, afterwards, Washington Senior got mad because apparently Washington Junior got mad that it made it seem like he was a Syracuse lean. Um, and then there was a the whole thing online and on Twitter. So that was interesting. Ultimately, I, I don't know if we know a whole hell of a lot more than we did before today started, uh, but it, it definitely is one to watch. And, and um, you've seen a lot of, and you shouldn't put too much stock in this because they're wrong often. But uh, 24-7 Sports has, like, their crystal ball thing where a bunch of writers from their site and a bunch of other sites, like, predict where he's going. And it definitely moved up again. Syracuse took over the top spot from Ohio State um, on there. And I'm assuming that's just writers reading the articles today and and seeing all the Syracuse thoughts. But um, if anything, Syracuse is a legitimate contender in this race. Uh, This isn't like a, you know, going back to Eshan Williams, which was probably the last one that people were so invested in. And I guess Ebenezer Ogundeko, too. But Williams, both his parents are Syracuse alum, so who knows how much he actually liked the school. It might have been more of a favor to Marone and a favor to um, the New York City crew and his parents. Uh, but it didn't ever seem totally to me like he was fully invested and then obviously he didn't commit to Syracuse. But this, it seems like Syracuse is right up there with the other, with the, the other five schools, all of which... I mean, UNC is not a power program, but the rest are all are all big time. Um, so if they win it, then you know this is going to be a really impressive haul for Syracuse, and I'm sure it'll a lot of people around the uh, around the country are going to really wonder what's up. But um, I'm hoping we do. Uh, but you never know what's going to happen with these things, and he's obviously played it pretty close to the best. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about this is he's been upfront saying he wants to commit, and and stay committed that he wants to be, you know, be signing papers and ready to go for January. That, I mean, his dad's been very vocal with the media, um, it, it seems. And and in general, you know, my big thing here is that while some people might think this is similar to what we've seen in the past in terms of, you know, us kind of, you know, getting getting in on the ground floor uh, with a very good recruit, and then just getting you know swooped later by a power program. In this case, like we well, you know we are down to a final six, which does include a lot of power programs. So I think um, while of course you know nothing's official until he signs on the dotted line, this is not at all the same type of situation we've seen in the past. Which what is wild, I think, like while I had some hope that the Syracuse was at least in the race, I think. This, even if he doesn't pick Syracuse, which I think part of his anger to his dad's could have been toward, about the fact that, you know, he saw what could happen in terms of fans turning on him. Um, I, I And, you know, like any other 17, 18-year-old kid, he wants to be liked. Um, I, I think that this kind of changes the conversation now. I mean, obviously, if we get him, suddenly we're in the conversation for some other elite recruits, I bet. Um, maybe not five-star guys, but 
some four stars in the uh, the mid-Atlantic area, but it seems that this could really change the conversation even if we lose and just, okay, like Syracuse can actually can actually go to bat against some of these better programs and, act, and, and you know, we could be seeing, you know, the first off-season where um, the indoor practice uh, facility really, really plays um, a major factor and, and, and registers for kids who might not have considered us in the past. You know, there's a lot of tradition here, but there's also a lot of future. And I think what we need to stress um, a lot is, you know, we're not just going to lean on the past, but the future is really what we want you to buy into here. Yeah, I think the practice facilities definitely, I mean, obviously there was a lot, it was a long time coming, but it, it's up now. Um, we've seen national media members who have stopped by say it's like up there with, you know, pretty much everyone else except for, you know, Oregon and A&M and a couple other schools that have, you know, extenuating circumstances. And there are schools like Florida and Georgia that don't even have facilities that match what Syracuse has just built. So that's definitely a bit of an equalizer now. Um, it's good to see that they were able to put something up that's competitive because I'm sure a lot of people I actually know a lot of people were worried that, you know, Syracuse will do this, but it won't be as good as what it needs to be able to be updated. So that's a good thing. Um, I think with Washington, it's always a good sign when you're competing for these recruits. We've had, we've had uh, recruiting battles like this before where we've been, you know, involved in a big national recruit and, and finished in the, as a finalist, but not come out. And it's, well, so I'd rather be in that position than just off the board totally. Um, we haven't quite closed yet. I mean, we've had, you know, Williams, who I brought up before, and David Oku, who seemed more of like a last minute, you know, he was a, you know, had relationship with a with a coach prior. I mean, he started So there are a lot of these guys who, for whatever reason, we haven't been able to, to pull out. And eventually you need to win one of these uh, to really start that ball rolling. And Washington's one of those guys that has, friends all over the place. He's been um, a big-time recruit for years now. Uh, I saw, I read today, and I probably just hadn't, didn't remember this. Um, we weren't even the first ones on him. Ole Miss offered when he was in eighth grade. So it's not like Syracuse found this diamond in the rough. Like, this kid's been a big recruit for, for like, five years now. So it would be a, a statement win for, for Scott Schaefer and one that he really could use. It's not, it's not a dead class or anything if they don't get him. It's not the end of the world. He is only one player, um, and in, in football, unlike basketball, that doesn't totally play a class. But if Syracuse wants to reach, like, the next level or, or jump back to where it's going to be, like, competitive in the heart of the ACC rather than just scrapping for, you know, hopefully winning seven or eight games uh, and then falling back like we did this past year, these are the kind of guys that would make that a lot easier. No, I, I completely agree there. And, and, and it is good to note that, you know, we found a lot of, you know, quote unquote diamonds in the rough and guys who who were unranked, we found them and then suddenly, oh look, Florida State's interested, Georgia's interested, all these other schools are interested. Um I think you're right though. I think winning at this point, like we can't be happy to be there anymore. Um I, I know we said this around Picard and it was great to actually get him later on, but um you know, we can't bank on situations like that with with a coach leaving. Um necessarily and and i guess now yeah like washington would be a huge win that could potentially you know beget more huge wins or at least you know start to move the needle i mean we have i think among the power programs we're definitely in the bottom 10 in terms of you know four-star talent brought in the door 
um, over the last decade or so. And I mean, and that that's that's alarming to some, but it's also indicative of uh, you know the product we've had in the field um, in, in a lot of ways. It's also amazing that we've been able to you know compete um, in terms of some of these you know, major schools, and we've been able to play tough games and beat ranked opponents and things like that with those types of recruiting numbers. But, you know, it, it's time to turn the page. And if we want to see ourselves on par with um, or even, you know, better than schools like Maryland or schools like Wake or BC or Rutgers or anything like that, then, then we need to start pulling in um, some solid talent. I mean, we have great guys. We have great coaching that gets these guys, a lot out of these guys. Um, but now we need to start, you know, competing for these recruits, getting them, and then competing in games on a national level. And it might take time, and I hope the fan base has the patience for, you know, the fact that this is a several-year process, but but I think we're getting there. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I saw a lot of people raising the question today about the impact that Washington would have on this class, both in terms of what other guys we could get. And I think there are a few. I know he has a cousin who's a 2017 cornerback who's a pretty – not as highly rated as he is, but pretty um, – he's getting a lot of attention for a 2017 kid already. Uh, but also the impact that it has on Schaefer. Um, I know in our internal chat there was, like, a little bit of dialogue over, you know, Schaefer has another non-bowl season, does getting a Washington um, standard job. And I'm not sure if he's that kind of player. Uh, and I'm not sure if anyone's that kind of player. I, I don't know if you should make that decision based on one guy. But if Washington starts to start the ball rolling on some of these other recruits opening their eyes to Syracuse and saying, oh, if, if it's a good enough school for him, it's a good enough school for anyone else, and we sign like a legit like top 35, top 30 class, maybe, you know, and then Syracuse goes five and seven, maybe that's something where, you know, it, it, we've seen at Virginia, Michael Longton's recruited really well, and that's definitely been the reason why he hasn't been fired. So maybe that's something where, where Schaefer definitely gets another year to see what he can do with uh, a little more talent on the roster and, and try to build off that. But um, hopefully we don't even have to have that discussion. Hopefully everything's uh, hunky-dory and we, we get to have all, all sides of this, this thing uh, going our, our way for once here at Syracuse fans. Right. I know we did say that earlier. I mean, general is, is interesting to talk about, um, and I don't necessarily know if um, if Washington is that type of player that you keep a coach around, especially if he signs in January, like signs before January even to get on campus. I mean, if he's already confirmed to be in the door, it sucks. But, you know, you tell a kid, um, you commit to a program, you don't commit to a coach, whether it's a head coach or an assistant or whatever, um, you know, or, at the end of the day, coaches can leave whenever they want. Like you're committing to to go to school there and and play for that program. So, you know, it might seem dishonest, but um, these things happen, and they happen a lot more often than I think people are even aware. Um, I, I think in general, we're all on the same page. I think all of us want um, a very good team this year. Um, I'll take six and six, to be honest, just because um, I, I think that. This coaching staff, um, while there might be some issues in terms of um, in-game stuff, um, does have a penchant for really identifying some talent, and even better than, um, you know, Marone's coaching staff did. Obviously, part of Marone's coaching staff did include Schaefer. 
but um, I, I think that that we really need to let this ride out as long as Schaefer is showing progress and, and, and he shows that last year was mostly about injuries and a poor offensive scheme um, than his own thing. But I am a little worried um, about his long-term viability based on the kind of negativity he seemed to show towards the fan base and, and, and media here in his, uh, you know, only his second full off season now. Yeah, and it's tough because after his first year, we were all on board. And people have seen, oh, I, I mean, I've probably been one of them. I think he does need to have it a year this year. But um, people have almost seemed to, like, forgotten that he did make a bowl in his first year when no one thought they would except for those of us who are very optimistic. So I don't think it's too crazy to say they might turn around this year. I know the spring game wasn't the prettiest thing, and uh, the schedule, while well, Pretty workable generally. Obviously, LSU's hanging out there, and we'll always have Florida State and Clemson in the current setup. So, um, yeah, I mean, if, if the team goes three and nine again, then it's a really hard sell. Um, if they're like, if they just miss a bowl or the team looks competitive, but things just don't go the right way, then it's a little bit more of a, a question mark. But I think um, it's really key for this team to get out to a good start this year, and, and the schedule aside from LSU lines up pretty well. There should be three wins in the first four games, um, and they really need to get all three of them because, you know, as we saw last year, when you fall behind, you know, what your your expected wins are, things can get up pretty quick. No, no doubt. Um, the switching gears a little bit, um, going from kind of football recruiting to basketball recruiting, I mean, what do you make of, of – this very sudden kind of turn of events. I know our own uh, Ben Siegel has, has really been uh, covering this top to bottom in terms of uh, all these offers going out and you know, these home visits um, from Bayheim and the rest of the staff. I mean, what do you think this means in terms of the change of recruiting strategy for Syracuse? And what do you think this means um, in terms of, you know, how many scholarships SU thinks it might be getting back in, in its appeal process? It's interesting. Um, Ben's brought it up, and, and I didn't even think about it that way for a while it, it, because it seemed like for so long that it's highest battle or bust. So I, I think there are kind of three things that work here. Um, a, I think with these all these point guard offers, uh, Kirby Simmons, um, I forget the, the most recent kid's name who was offered today or yesterday, um, and I will look that up while I awkwardly pause for time. Um, but it does seem like, A, Beheim is getting his ducks in a row for getting that point guard that we really need on the roster. Um, and it, it kind of almost seems like they might be putting the pressure on battle a little bit, saying, you know, we can't hold out for that long. We have extenuating circumstances with our scholarship. It's uh, Alfred Gilbert, by the way, um, is the third player. But uh, it, it does seem like he's either – trying to get some really high-level contingency plans in place while still going hard after battle. I think he's supposed to be visiting there tonight. Um, he might be, you know, making, get, making, sending the message to battle that, you know, they're not going to wait forever. They have to make a move. The basketball recruiting goes so quickly in most, in most cases. And um, the third thing might be that he thinks uh, that there's a chance that we get some scholarships back here. Obviously, we don't no idea what the status of the appeal is. It's hard to tell because um, everything's so secret 
when it comes to the NCAA. But they're also recruiting um, the non-related to our, our buddy by uh, Sade Kita, who's a six foot eleven forward or center. Um, he is not a point guard, uh, and he's the only guy that we seem really have, uh, heavy in that's not a point guard for 2016. So the fact that he's still a major target does seem like the staff at least thinks that there's a decent chance that they get a scholarship or two back. No, absolutely, and I think though you're seeing too, and and Ben brought this up as well that for some that might be confused about the change in strategy, the change in strategy is directly related to the the reduction of recruiting hours that have available to us, and also the fact that you know what, like if we're going to if we're going to do this right, um, and and not have to deal with the effects for as long if you recruit one and done guys in particular for a four year stretch, guess what? They're all like it's done. Like then you don't have to worry about the lost scholarships. Yes, it sucks um, in many ways because you know then you're kind of refreshing your team every year. But at the same time, it's worked out well for other programs um, in recent years. You're looking at uh, to an extreme extent Kentucky, to a lesser extent Duke. But when you see Duke literally just being able to trip and fall into five star guys, um, I, I think. Bayheim and the rest of the staff see um, what that means for us. And if we want to survive um, in the ACC uh, with or without Jim Bayheim, we need to uh, definitely need to do a few things um, to set ourselves up going forward. Yeah, and honestly, if it's good enough for two none of us like losing players after a year. Uh, it's just not. I don't think it's a great thing for the sport, and I don't put that on the players at all. I think they should be able to have more freedom with their decisions that they don't have now. But um, right now, the reality is that the teams that are winning on a consistent level uh, are the ones that are taking one and done players. Uh, we've had three of them this year, and people were bringing up whether or not Grayson Allen would go to the NBA, and a lot of NBA people thought he would be a first-round pick if he left. So that's really all you need to know. So if we have to go, you know, get a group of uh, – one and done guys year in and year out and become a program that, that recruits like that because it's a necessity. There are worse fates in the world than bringing in a hall of uber talented players on a daily basis and then supplementing guys like Tyler Lydon and, and uh, some of the other more traditional three or four years. But um, yeah, I mean, you also just want to bring in the best players no matter how long they're out. No one expected uh, Ennis to only stay one year, but I mean, is anyone who's not really jaded about this stuff going to trade the year of Tyler Ennis that we had? Probably not. So, no, I mean, one shot alone. alone. And, and Beheim, for all the, I mean, we've given him a decent amount of flack for his reaction to the one and done guys, to the guys that have left early. But in his defense, there have been guys who have left early who he hasn't bashed. Dion, who no one thought was the number four pick until he was the number four pick left early, and, and I don't remember Bayheim saying much about it. Um, even, you know, Carter Williams, um, Johnny, a couple others. Like, the guys who have gone high, Bayheim pretty much nailed it on the head, and the guys who he didn't like as much, uh, you know, Jeremy and Tyler last year, obviously it worked out for Jeremy. Tyler's in a, a, a decent spot now, um, kind of finding his way, but they definitely didn't go as high as they thought they would. So he's not always wrong that in terms of his evaluation, 
I think his delivery could be a little better sometimes and, and a little more compassionate. But um, he, he definitely isn't so stuck in his ways that he's just refusing to take one of them guys because he's done it in the past and uh, hasn't had any issue with doing it. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know what, there's different ways to look at one and done guys, too. In recent years, Bam hasn't been going after guys who were specifically spelled out as one and dones. And I think when you don't go after those players as much, it becomes harder to deal with their departures versus when you have guys that are specifically geared toward, okay, like you're stopping here for the one year that you need the exposure and the experience to get to the NBA. Um, so now like we're expecting this and we're ramping up recruiting for the next cycle to make sure to replace, you know, your roster spot. And I think that that's, that's really what people seem to forget when they criticize coaches for getting a little iffy about it. Like, you know what, Bayhan didn't wish ill upon any of these kids. He gives every kid the opportunity to, you know, seek out opinions and evaluations. Um, and is happy to to give, you know, his own thoughts to help them out and make the best choice for them. Um, but it's one of those things where, yeah, like I said, you know, you have to, as a coach, you're definitely more prepared for it if you're recruiting guys that you know have been talked about as, as lottery picks after year one versus ones that aren't. Yeah, and as long as they don't get hurt and then say they're coming back and then don't not come back. Um, but I totally agree. I mean, part of the genius of the, of the program that John Calipari has built is that he, in in very short order, has turned Kentucky into a place that is totally in with the one and done thing. And there are still fans there that I've encountered that, you know, will get will complain when someone like Dakari Johnson leaves early. But the vast majority of them have gone in so quickly that they, I mean, they just totally kind of understand that that's how the program is going to be. And then occasionally go back into something like last year where they had this whole group of sophomores and, and uh, guys who stayed for one reason or another. But for the most part, they're they're rotating in and out players, and it's just become the acceptable reality. Um, if Duke fans were more prominent on the Internet, I'm sure they would be kind of the same way. Um, but, yeah, you just have to – for a while there, it seemed like you were kind of cool with it. Between the, the Johnny to the uh, MCW – but then the last uh, last couple of years, it seems like our, our fans have really fallen off. And I think part of that the team not accomplishing things in the postseason or not making the postseason. But, uh, yeah, it would be nice if everyone got back to, like, accepting that these decisions are going to be made and that it's not always about, you know, what the fans want to see when these kids have a very limited amount of time to make money playing professional basketball. Right. All right. So I think that that gets us on recruiting because you know what? I mean, I think there's a lot more time to go on these kids. I mean, I think we're pretty much set for 2015. I think 2016 is going to be interesting. Um, putting the pressure on battle is smart, uh, to be honest, because I, I don't think we, we have the uh, the luxury of biding our time. And as a result, neither does he. That might not seem fair, but you know, it's not as if we're we're operating in a in different reality than he is. Um, but, you know, for anyone who hasn't been to the site today, which I would assume if you have the podcast, you probably wandered in um, at some point, definitely offering kids in 2016, 17, and 18 already. 
and uh, really, really kind of getting in there um, as early as possible with the hope of locking them down. Because as we know, basketball isn't as volatile as football. Um, once a kid commits, more often than not, he's usually going to stick to his gun. Um, it's just, it's different. There's different goals for the players, different goals for the teams. Um, and obviously, the sooner that we get these things secured, uh, the better. Yeah, although, I mean, Deion Waiters committed as a high school freshman, so it's not, like, totally unheard of that he would have uh, have guys this early. No, without a doubt. I think it's just more that um, most are used to the whole process of, all right, lock up this year's class and move on to next year's class. And, I mean, for those who follow football recruiting, Syracuse doesn't really, or no one really, but especially Syracuse doesn't really get in that far ahead of, of classes. And to, to see it in basketball, you know, I definitely saw a couple comments like, why are we going after 2018 kids? Already? Well, because we only have a limited amount of scholarships. So we need to, we need to make our time count um, on the recruiting trail. We need to make the scholarships count because you really can't miss um, on a lot of these guys. Yeah. And I mean, it's not a lot different than a lot of what a lot of the other uh, top top uh, programs are doing. You just don't hear about it as much. But Syracuse has always had a pretty limited scope in basketball in terms of who they recruit. Like if they don't think they have a shot with a kid, they move on fairly quickly compared to uh, a lot of other schools. So when you know when they think they have a, a good beat on a 2017 or 2018 kid early, you're going to hear about it because there's going to be more focus on that person rather than, you know, a, a kid who they're, they've looked at and they've visited, but they're not, that, you know, maybe they're things are out of pretty quickly. Yep, absolutely agree. So that makes uh, halftime-ish. Uh, I think we're almost 30-minute mark. Um, Dan, what have you been drinking for the last two weeks since we uh, will have an extended list if not an extended period of time for halftime today uh let me pull up my list i didn't have it open because i you know i've only been doing this podcast for like two years now um i was at a, a couple of met teams this weekend and city field has really i mean it's always been pretty good for it but they've really kicked their uh their craft beer game into, into uh into motion here this year um they have a whole new york state uh beer a couple different beer stands that are all new york state craft stuff um really good representation of upstate new york uh, i tweeted out a list of like some of the stuff they had but they had ithaca um i don't know if they had empire uh but they had upstate brewery which i haven't had they had a couple different things in southern tier i had a, a nice tall uh hop sun which is one of my favorites that they brew um always one of my favorite summer beers overall. Pretty much anywhere in the stadium, you can find like a Juice Island or something like that. That's a bit more prominent. Um, they even have like Southern Tears two times IPA, which is impressive. They have all my gig stuff. So uh, a bunch of that, which is always good. Um, I also spent some time uh, at uh, one of the beer gardens here in the city, which is always fun. So uh, a lot of German beer, some Spaten. Um, had some Lagunitis. Or like Anitas, uh, Captain Lawrence, which is uh, pretty common for me. I, I just thought of your package, um, your shipment of beer uh, today or yesterday. I forgot what day it was. Um, 
I haven't had a chance to crack those open yet, although I probably will this weekend, so I'm excited for that as well. Fair enough. Yeah, I got to get um, – definitely have to get myself over to, to City Field again sometime soon. I haven't been 2012. Yeah, it's been a while. That's what happens when you live 3,000 miles away. Um, hmm. They are actually in town when I'm in town. But they're facing the Giants. So that's probably not going to be cheap. <laughs> Uh, it might not be too bad. I mean, uh, I went to both games this weekend for like under 20 bucks. I mean, it was the Marlins, but the team is also like on a huge winning streak. And even the games in the Yankees, coming up at Yankee Stadium, haven't are, aren't too uh, crazy priced. So it's generally pretty easy to get into. Well, I'll uh, put a pin in that. We can uh, we can revisit that. Absolutely. <laughs> because. Yeah, because I yeah, that haven't been. I mean, I'm seeing the Mets a couple times this summer. Um, seeing one at Dodger Stadium, and I'm actually seeing them when I'm in Chicago next month. Over regularly. Oh, nice. Yeah. Glad so you haven't totally been regularly. Well, I haven't totally abandoned, but that's uh, did get a a Brooklyn Dodgers hat and a new T-shirt to uh, <laughs> to wear to games. I won't hold it too far. But. Fair enough. I just feel like the Brooklyn Dodgers are only half a trader. Yeah, you're, you're not or, the same, or I'm the same amount. I'm the same amount of traders as the Dodgers are. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I drank a bunch of stuff in the last two weeks because that's usually what I do. Um, had a three Floyd's Space Station Middle Finger, a really good pale ale from them. Uh, kind of drinks like a like a hoppy IPA. Get to Standard pale ale. Um, had a couple of different beers from uh, from the brewery, all of which were very interesting. Uh, at Freckle, which is kind of a uh, they considered it a bit of a mole stout. Um, I really enjoyed that one. Um, so had their uh, horchata, uh, the 2015 version. It's pretty much a blonde that's brewed to be exactly like a uh, horchata, a traditional Mexican drink. Um, very enjoyable beer. Um, surprising too, like. For all the flavor that was in it, it, it you know really stays true to the blonde um, ale style. And sorry, the Rangers just won an overtime, and I am elated. Uh, but moving on. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm, I'm surprised I can keep my composure. Uh, also had I know this one I uh, I sent a picture of to you after I drank it uh, that same night a couple weekends ago. Uh, Mash and grind from the brewery. Uh, just a really, really good um, bourbon and coffee, um, barley wine. That uh, I wish I had more bottles. I could have ordered more bottles of it. I did. Now I'm extremely bummed by that because that was a really good beer. I had it on draft like six or seven months ago, and then there was a quick archive beer sale uh, that went up on the brewery uh, that I got to jump in on. Uh, some other things, uh, Noble King from Jester King, kind of a hoppy saison. Those enjoy Jester King down in Austin. Uh, really good stuff. If you don't have, if you never had it, I would trade for it. Um, they have that, Das Wunderkind, there's a couple others that are just really, really good. Uh, H.O. Rubicite, um was the one that we, that Aaron and I featured in our uh, beer bracket um, back when the NCAA tournament started. That one uh, won the whole thing um, based on our picks. 
uh, had Kern River Brewing's classified stout. I was on a stout kick. Um, my wife doesn't like IPAs for the most part, so if there's only IPAs in the fridge, I end up drinking all all the beer. And if there's dark beers in the fridge, we end up splitting them. So I was trying to be nice. I got some some darker stuff. So I had that. Always enjoy a Founders Breakfast Stout. Um, when I was in Arizona back in March, uh, they had Founders there, and for some reason, the people there were not smart enough to just grab every breakfast stout off the shelves. So I grabbed the four pack. Um, another really good one I had the other day: uh, Quaker Town Stout from Armadillo Ale Works down in Denton, Texas. Uh, very very good brew. Um, kind of maple syrupy. It's kind of got definitely got that traditional uh, traditional oatmeal taste that you're going to get um, out of the stout, or especially an oatmeal stout. Um, and then last night, finally got to get something from uh, Lawson's Finest Liquids um, up in Vermont uh, via trade. Got to try their uh, Sip of Sunshine IPA, which was very very delicious, um, crisp, refreshing. Uh, Definitely uh, seem to toe the line really well between East Coast and West Coast IPAs, which I can always appreciate. You mean Vermont, the state that produces uh, six of the ten countries' best beers, according to one guy who's from Vermont who <laughs> made a list? That list. I was, I was just, like, annoyed. <laughs> like, like, it's fine. Like, everyone can have their own opinions. Like, I don't really give a shit. <laughs> like, at some point, you need to... Like, just accept the fact that you're not really an unbiased sat here and lifted out every Vermont beer. It's funny. It's almost, like, more offensive than if, like, if it was, if you just looked at those beers from, like, a state that wasn't good at at making beer, because Vermont is, and there are lots of good, notable beers from Vermont. But, like, he's definitely a guy who thought Vermont was, like, the pinnacle, and no other states were really, like, like, if he could have made that list 10 Vermont beers, he probably would have. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like the, the Whereas if, like, if it was just some guy who just didn't have a wide sampling and like listed a bunch of beers from like his general area, then like, you know, whatever. No, totally. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like he just kinda like stumbled into a list. He's like, Oh, let's just look at the beer advocate top like, you know, twenty beers list. I mean and that list too just gets stupid. Um because, you know, there's so much local bias at this point. Um, like, it, I think I looked lately and, like, just about everything from Toppling Goliath was on there, like, in the top 250. It was just because, like, everyone loves their local brews more than anybody else's. So, like, take all those with a grain of salt. Keep in mind the fact that if a beer is highly rated by locals, chances are, like, especially if it's, like, highly rated. But... You know, anyone who takes those numbers for, like, you know, raw fact and that four is actually better than five and, and five is actually better than seven or whatever is just fooling themselves and say, drink good beer, enjoy it, tell other people about beers you liked, don't put down beers they liked unless it's, you know, piss water produced by several of the macro brewing companies in the United States. And, uh, yeah, just enjoy beer because that's really what it's there for. Here, here. <laughs> Speaking of sports things, the Mets have taken a three to two lead. So there New York is. is happy if you are a fan of one of those two teams. Although you're probably not a fan of both because of the weird way that these fandoms break down. <laughs> I mean, Dan, I so, if, if, the Mets, if the Mets win it all this year, am, am I never allowed back? 
<laughs> uh, we'll we'll see. We'll we'll test your 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 uh, how loyal how loyal you are to the Metsies as we go on here. I don't think I'm going to be that loyal, to be honest. Just just putting it out there. I, I, well, I don't wish ill upon them. I don't wish ill upon them, and I want them to be successful. But I, I just don't feel like I just don't feel like if they won anymore that that it would be mine. And and that's saying a lot as someone who grew up caring about Mets baseball more than any other sport. That's fair. I mean, I'm like borderline rooting against the Brooklyn Nets in this net series as an net fan, and that's mostly just because I'm so tired of everyone associated with the team. Uh, a little different situation, but I, I get that. And it's, you know, it's probably more respect, like respectable to do that than to, like, jump aboard in, in September when the Mets have won 80 games for the first time in, in, in almost a decade and acting like you've been around the whole time. But those of us out here are, like, watching 90 games a year of just bad baseball. Well, right. And like I mentioned in the, I mentioned in our internal chats earlier, like 2006, 2007, like almost murdered my interest in baseball completely. Um, Because you know what, like you can only take so much dejection. And to be honest, like if the Dodgers won it all this year, my, my happiness would come from being in the city that they wanted in. And you know, knowing that my in-laws are all big Dodgers fans. I'm a season ticket holder. So it's not as if I wasn't part of it. But yeah, I, I don't think it would be the same feeling that I would get. And like that I did get out of, you know, going to the Stanley Cup finals last year, like watching Syracuse get to the final four. Like those are all things that, that like are, are exclusively mine. And like, I don't, I don't have to feel any sort of mixed anything about that. But yeah, baseball has become, for me anyway, a, a bit of a mixed bag. Um, but that said, you know, I told you I'm going to a couple Mets games this year. I will be wearing a Mets hat at Dodger Stadium come July. They're actually out here July 4th weekend. So. Very nice. Are we going to one of those games? Yeah, I'm not going to go to every game because I like money and those games will be sold for a decent amount of it because I'm going to pay everybody back for every time that as a New York fan, I had to pay double the price for road tickets, even when it was the goddamn Knicks, <laughs> because that's how these things work. At least you're not that guy who uh, quit his job and bought, and went to every Knicks game this year, all 82. That was, uh, that was a wise life. That is personal life. I really hope he gets a book deal. Like, he needs to get a book deal. There's no other thing that can make up for it, because <laughs> that's one of the worst decisions anyone's ever made. Well, he, I mean, he was writing about it while he was doing it, so I feel like the book is mostly written. But, yeah, then it's just a question of whether people would read a book when they're already on the blog. Yeah, I guess, I don't know. I haven't read the blog. I know he was doing it. But it's just funny because, like, it wasn't even like he dove into this, like, adventure and sadness. This is just a premeditated, oh, the Knicks, I'm a big Knicks fan. You know, we weren't great last year, but we were pretty good two years ago. Uh, should be better this year. We have Phil Jackson, so let's do this thing. And he bought all the tickets before the season started, and it just turned into this awful sideshow um, where by the end of the year they couldn't even lose when they wanted to lose. Just unbelievable. Um, and if you ask me, if I, as a Nets fan, if I would rather be in the position the Knicks are in or the Nets are in, I'd probably say the Knicks because at least they're going to get a top three pick, and the Nets are not going to have uh, – they're going to have like a – bottom five pick because they decided to allow the Hawks to institute a pick swap when totally unnecessary. 
Oh, well, I mean, to be honest, though, we're going to trade that pick for, like, fucking, you know, Wesley Matthews and Cash because we're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> like, something stupid. Like, I, I, I'm literally just waiting for it. I mean, the, that the stupid report that came out today that we were considering trading the pick for either Kevin Love or Kevin Durant. I'm like, oh, God, because, of course, it's not just the pick. Like, it's going to be that pick. And it's going to be the next pick that we have in, like, 2019. And then after that, it's going to be, you know, Tim Hardaway and probably Langston Galloway or somebody else. And, like, this is what the Knicks do. And it doesn't matter who's in charge as long as James Bowen owns the team. Like, this is just how it works. So, uh, you know, I'm fully expecting disappointment. The, the Knicks have, uh, I mean, and believe me, like, I had a, I had a surprisingly good time watching them twice in a four-day stretch in two different states this year. And and both times it was it was really just sitting there and laughing at the futility. I mean, they even won one of the games, and I still pretty much laughed through both of them. Yeah, at least I mean, if you if you could get Durant, I think you make that trade. The problem is you have to make sure the Knicks wouldn't they would trade and then not lock him up, and then uh, and then they would lose him to DC. Of course we would. That's that's the Knicks. That's exactly what would happen. And Billy King would be like, "How would you? How would you pull off such a great deal?" From across <laughs> town. Oh God, you're a basketball tourist. So, wanted to close out and just forewarn everyone that we're probably going to drift away from Syracuse here. Dan and I are, are pretty much the blogs. Well, I know the Straw Hat guy is a big fan. There's somebody else who's a big fan. Yeah, I think it's I think Straw it is Hat guy. guy. Yeah, so me and Dan are, like, two of the three, like, major Mad Men fans on the blog. And, you know, I was writing recaps for a couple of weeks, and I didn't do it this week just because there was so much going on in the early part of the week um, in terms of content on the site that I didn't really feel like we needed a, a stick to sports filler. So we're going to talk about it here. Um, so for those who either aren't caught up or don't give a shit, uh, you can feel free to fast forward to the uh, sign-off. Um, but for those who want to stick around, we'll be talking about the forecast, which was the episode um, that was on this past Sunday. Uh, so, Dan, uh, lots of wacky stuff. I don't really feel like we're reaching conclusions for people, though I know I've seen a lot of opinions around the Internet that we might be kind of wrapping up some arcs, even if they're not explicitly telling us that we are. That's what it seems like. It seems like Megan's gone. Um, it's Ken probably out when he's not nearly as big as some of the other guys. I'm hoping that wasn't it for Sally, um, because that was about the most brutal way to write off a character I think most people kind of enjoy. Um, but it does seem like, I mean, there's only so much time left, and it's it's really annoying because it didn't need to be this way. Um, if AMC just didn't decide to pull this uh, two-half-season stunt just because it worked with a completely different show that was organized a totally different way and had grown a following in a totally different way. So it's frustrating. Um, I, that being said, I, I've enjoyed the season so far. I thought the second episode was kind of a hit or miss, but I, I really like the first one and I really like this one. And I totally trust uh, Matt Weiner to, to wrap up a, a solid season here. But um, yeah, it's definitely, it's, I don't, I never expected this to feel like a normal final season of a show because Mad Men, so very different from how most dramas are now. Um, but it does seem like 
people are just kind of fading into the uh, the abyss that is like the ending of this show. I think that's almost like I feel like part of it's almost symbolism is that in the end everybody kind of fades to black and we're left with Don sitting around by himself. Like it's really yeah. what I mean. Everybody seems like they get like it's, everyone seems like they're either they understand their end goal or they're content with it. And then he's the only one who seems completely unsettled. Yeah, I I think my theory with four episodes left, it almost feels like Don is like just watching this past episode. It, compared to pretty much every other season, um, where he was so engaged with with the work and with the advertising world, and then this past episode where we saw him in the office a decent amount. But he seems so disengaged from everything, especially when it came to, like, the Tinkerbell turkey pitch where um, their pitch that they came to him with was, like, at least kind of thought out, but it wasn't great. And then he gave him some crappy slogan, and they just ran with that instead. Uh, he definitely didn't seem, like, invested at all. And I almost feel like we're moving towards Don, maybe by the end of the show, um, killing off the identity of Don Draper and just kind of becoming disconnected from all that made him this kind of fake persona that he really, you know, that we all know if you're listening to this podcast, hopefully you've watched the first uh, six seasons of the show. He's not actually, he isn't actually that person. So maybe we're, we're moving toward Don re-embracing the identity of being Dick Whitman or at least someone that he actually is and not living through the lie that he's been living since, since we've known him. Right. And I think, you know, I, I think I moved past the, the patricide possibility. Um, I think I moved past him dying too, um, at least, at least literally, figuratively maybe. Um, but, but I also think that he might have been dying the entire time in that regard. Um, because I think, you know, a lot of people have always looked at the intro and, and seen it as, you know, oh, well, Don's going to die in the end. And part of me thinks that, you know, like, it was almost symbolic of him, you know, falling and or dying the entire time. Like, you never have to see him hit the bottom. He'd kind of been in the process of doing it the entire, like, throughout the show's run. Um, He's not the only one that's been there, but I think, yeah, like, and he's definitely the only one left who doesn't seem to have... um, a solid end game. Um, and I guess moving, like pivoting a little bit from that, I was just really glad that, and I don't think we're going to see her again, hopefully, uh, that Diana, his, uh, his two episode fling uh, is already out of the picture. So to be honest, I, I didn't really like that intro with, with such little time left on the board. Yeah. I don't think we're going to see, uh, t- Don finding a third wife here. I, I think, I think you're right. I, I almost um, have, have you have you seen uh, Boyhood? I have. All right. So the end of Boyhood, uh, Patricia Arquette's last last line where she has, and I don't know why I've, I've made this connection like the last couple of nights thinking about these Batman episodes, but she, her last line when uh, when the uh, eponymous boy is leaving for college uh, is like, I thought there would be more. And I kind of feel that I've kind of made that connection with this Mad Men season where, you know, Don has had, is 
you know, a multimillionaire. He was able to write off a check to Megan for a million dollars, for, and it didn't even seem to really faze him. He's hit, like, such a high level professionally, and he's tried to make a dough of it with two different families now, and he's totally unfulfilled, and it almost seems like he's kind of at the same place as Patricia Arquette was in the end of Boyhood, where he's gone through all these things that are supposed to be, like, fulfilling experiences, and they've totally left him empty. Um, and I, I almost think we're, we're going to see him. I, I just have to imagine there's going to be some giant change that he makes. Um, and I don't think it's going to be death. I think that'd be too obvious. But uh, it really does feel like we're approaching Don just kind of scrapping and leaving New York or, or something uh, monumental. Um, but it might not be something that we would have thought a year or two ago where you expect like these giant dramatic final episodes where there's they're action packed. Um, I just don't think it's that kind of show. And I think we'll see a lot of, uh, of difference between, you know, Don and where other, where others are. Um, I also thought the, the scene with Peggy was pretty, uh, pretty telling where he almost seems like concerned that uh, I couldn't tell if he seems like concerned that she's falling down the same rabbit hole in terms of her, uh, what she's, you know, her goals are, or if he's, jealous that she has them and she still cares and and can identify what she wants to do so clearly where he you know with all these opportunities all this money and everything else has no idea see to me that scene i feel like and i again i really hope that like we've seen that peggy has other scenes but i hope that's not like the last scene where her and don meaningfully interact um i can i, I think that yeah, I, I I would be very surprised since that relationship has been. I mean, same thing with with Sally too. That those relationships have been at the crux of the show from start to finish. I'd say even more sh- more so than his uh, his relationships with with Betsy and uh, Megan is that you know those Sally and Peggy connections really need to continue to shine through. But what I saw in that scene was just a very, it seemed like Don taking out his own frustrations on Peggy in a way, you know, like he sits there and, and, and wants to keep everything grounded. She gives him grounded. He says, shoot for the moon. She shoots for the moon. He says, that's too high. He just kind of, he felt like he was not in control anymore. And he knew that Peggy would allow him to take control of the situation. And then when she shot back at him, basically revealed that he didn't have control over anything anymore. And the same thing happened with uh, with Sally later on. Um, You know, I think both of those scenes spoke a lot of volumes about kind of where Don stands and, uh, you know, talks back to a lot of what we were saying earlier about, about his general state of mind. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing is like, you could kind of, a lot of other shows, you can kind of tell where we're going to go, even when there's a lot more, uh, movement and a lot more, you know, for lack of a better word, action. Where Mad Men, like, I have no idea what we're going to get out of these last four episodes. Uh, there doesn't seem to be, like, an obvious direction we're moving in. Um, it almost, I mean, I almost feel like the finale might not even feel like uh, oh, totally different than another episode of Mad Men. It's just might, it might just end. And, and that should be fine. I'm really interested to see what they do, but it is so different from a lot of the other serial, serialized dramas that we, uh, we've gotten over the last 10 years where there's such a ramp up to the, to the finale. We're here. It's just like, it's, 
maybe maybe it's because it's kind of reflecting on the character of Dom. It's just kind of living it out at this point, and not in a bad way. It's yeah, just, it's just a different feel. Yeah, and like I don't really know what caused this sort of like you know big monumentous finale. Um, because shows didn't always have to end that way, you know? Um, and I just feel like in recent years, everyone's really gone to these big, even like comedies have gone to these like really somber finales. Um, and I feel like, you know, knowing, knowing that Weiner's MO is not to do anything that's expected. I mean, you can see any of his other work and that's obvious. Um, yeah, I, I feel like based on some of the hints that we've seen dropped, from the writing staff and producers, but it seems that, you know, they, they, because there's so much time left to go to get to our current timeline, I mean, and most of them, just about all of them will, you know, be long gone once, like, they would theoretically get to 2015, but I think they almost want to allow us, and I, I respect this, allow us to kind of imagine where everything goes, but, but give us at least a good starting point to base things on. So, you know, you might not be happy with how everyone ends. You might not think that everyone is on a road toward a, a, a happy last, you know, whether it's 20 years or 30 years or 40 years on Earth. But but I think that we're at least going to have an idea of where they're headed next and where they could be headed. And then we can kind of, you know, imagine what happens from there. Yeah. And it's never been that show. I mean, it, it's, there's a lot of great characters, and, and obviously they give us a decent look into a lot of them, but it, it, it's always been Don's show, and, and I think Peggy is probably the, the number two there in terms of you know giving her prominent story, and I think people really want to see her come out you know in a decent place. But overall, I think we're going to mostly see where people end up as related to Don and as related to the company. So I don't expect, like, too much definite closure, but um, I, I am interested to see how they position everyone. Yep. And some quick questions. Uh, I think to kind of wrap this up, I think we did have to talk some, uh, some big picture stuff. Um, do you think anybody else on the show dies before it wraps up? Uh, yeah, I think we'll do that. I don't think it'll be like a, a lot of them, but I think we'll get like a, I think we'll get one. I don't know if, if you had to say who it was. Roger. Hmm. Just like living hard. I can see Roger. I'm still entertaining the uh, the Manton family Hollywood Hills murders for Megan. I'm not completely done with that one, but at the same time, I do feel like her arc's kind of wrapped. Um, I I just think Weiner like acknowledged it in that little like there was there was a conversation in episode one I think of this season. Yeah, 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 that, like, offhanded comment. I think that was, like, him acknowledging the theory and putting it to bed. But maybe. Who knows? It'd be such a, it'd be such a ridiculous thing for him to, like, over and over say that's not what it is and then just actually make that it. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree there. I think that's been tied up. I would say he kills Harry Crane, but I don't think he has to. I think Harry Crane's very hung himself in this time. I think Harry's dead, like inside on the inside. Anyway, he's a terrible person. If, if they, yeah, they want to okay. run over, uh, if they want to run over Harry with like a giant lawnmower, I think that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, like I, I wouldn't mind a, like a funny callback, but yeah, I, I think 
I think Harry is, is already figuratively dead, so I literally make it so. Um, we're definitely going to see a ton more from uh, Ken, because I, I was kind of annoyed by how that, uh, that storyline took place in, in episode one, and we haven't even seen him since. Some people said I, I saw some people wrote that I thought that was it for him, but it didn't make make him a part like not a part of the company, but a part of the company's dealings, and then to write him out like that. But who knows? The one person I we haven't gotten much of at all is Pete, and I think we'll definitely see at least one like really Pete centered episode going forward. I yeah, I think based on like the next time on Mad Men uh, flash forward that they kind of had, um, Pete's got to play a more prominent role, and, and I think. If there's one character who who is, you know, close to as unsettled as Don, it's Pete. Um, I don't think Pete has happiness. I think actually, to be honest, Pete Pete seems like a a possible death candidate here. Um, I, I I think that, you know, Pete is Pete is Don without the introspection and 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 humility that he can display. Um, and then, and I almost think that, you know, on the other hand, um, you know, Bert could have almost been the other part of Don. And I'm, I'm curious to see if, if they decide to go that route and view those two as kind of two halves to a whole Don Draper, if they decide to kill off the other half before the show ends. Yeah. I mean, Pete's almost like very similar, uh, like vices and, and, the uh, trajectory is on, except he doesn't have like the the artistic side or like the creative gene or anything. He's very, he's definitely like a. I mean, some people hate him. I, I don't really hate Pete Campbell as a character for whatever reason, but he's definitely like a pragmatist and uh, very conniving. Which Don is is more just like able to assert his will. Pete kind of weasels his way into positions of power. Um, but they definitely do have like there there is a definite similarity, especially in later seasons between the two. Right. Um, and I guess, I guess as a final note, like, not even related to the show anymore. Um, do you see uh, John Hamm turning into uh, kind of a force of comedy, or or is this kind of is this going to be the type of role where where everyone really struggles to to separate him from? from Don Draper and he kind of, he kind of putzes along for the rest of his acting career. I think he'll continue to work like decent work. I think he, Don Draper is going to be his defining role. It's hard to, I mean, it's, it's really hard to do seven seasons of something so good and not have that be so. Um, I could definitely see him doing comedy just because he's so great when he pops up on other things and he's obviously geared that way. Uh, I hope he's okay. I know he has had a, a rehab stint, but um, I almost think he's... I, I wouldn't be shocked if he ends up doing more movies uh, for a while and then waits a while to do another show because generally people don't go right from one big franchise or one big, uh, one big show to another. But um, I think he'll definitely be a hot commodity either way. Agreed. All right. I think that's... Uh... Nothing of Mad Men and Syracuse for everybody. I hope uh, hope everybody enjoyed. And uh, Dan, thanks for uh, thanks for stopping by as always. Uh, yeah, always a pleasure. We'll have to do a Mad Men again after the show ends. Yeah, and everybody else, if you haven't been watching the show it's on Netflix, if you have, 
Got a few episodes left. Um, we'll have Fresno Syracuse lacrosse coming up soon, um, as well as just some ongoing recruiting battles. I'm sure, regardless of what happens with the Robert Washington decision on Saturday, um, we'll have something to talk about next Wednesday, Thursday for you listening. Um, but yeah, should be another busy week. So for Dan, I'm John. You have been listening to Troy Noons as an absolute podcast. Uh, be sure to subscribe, rate, review us on iTunes, on uh, Blog Talk. Much appreciated. People do pay attention to these things. It does impact search and a bunch of other stuff that, you know, we care about, even if you only do in passing. But uh, with that said, go Orange in every endeavor. I know the Orange Eagle could be decided this weekend for all we know. So uh, root on your orange clad or platinum clad uh, teams so we can win a trophy that is not fictional and represents a real competition with a real trophy and real bragging rights. Yes, and unless uh, it. That too. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.